Hi, this is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Also found at anywhere you can find uh, uh, podcasts. Uh, our guest today, Spring Washam. She is a well-known meditation teacher, author, and visionary uh, based in California and uh, also spends a lot of time in Peru. She is the author of A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. Spring, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Spring, um, in the bio that uh, was sent uh, with the press material for your book, um, I discovered that you have uh, you have a very interesting background. Um, so tell us about it and how you came to your spiritual life, which is very Buddhist oriented, um, from uh, the background you started with. I'll let you tell the story. Well, I think in some ways I have this sort of a background mixed with Buddhism and shamanism. But to go earlier, yeah, I think my interest in spirituality started at a really young age. Um, I talk about in my book on the, the first couple of chapters, I talk about um, at like being five years old and, you know, looking around and thinking, telling my sister, actually, uh, this is going to be a hard life here. Uh, we're pretty poor by the looks of it. And our my father's gone and there's not a lot of wisdom and I'm black. And, and you know, those all these things that felt like these huge obstacles, trauma and Ah, so it's not an uncommon story, you know, it's like blooming in the mud. It's just kind of growing up with all the difficulties and obstacles. And then as I got older into my teen years, I got very interested in understanding psychology because um, then that was what was popular, you know, and so I, I was very aware that there was something going on with my mind and the mind of others. You know, as I would look around, why are people so upset? Why are they angry? Why are they hurt? Why are they acting uh, in this way to each other, to themselves? So it was really psychology, sort of self-help psychology when I was a teenager. And then that led me into the path of meditation. And I was really lucky that uh, in my early 20s, I, I just happened upon a retreat where I got to meet a very wise teacher um, his name is Jack Cornfield, and he's a Buddhist teacher. Some of your viewers may know him. Uh, he's written many books and founded a lot of centers and does a lot of good in the world. Um, so that led me into the whole path of meditation and studying. And then I started training with him. And so that was like the beginning of it all, I think, right there. And then later, the whole second story of my, um, my evolution is, then to heal trauma, I, I started going to South America. So that's that's kind of like a whole nother stream. But but that's sort of how it started. It's not wow. an unfamiliar story, you know, how overcoming obstacles and all of that. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, Spring, a couple of questions. One is, where did you grow up? Was it in L.A.? And uh, was there a church that you or, you or your family were affiliated with as a child? And, that, and, and if so... Was there a uh, a minister or somebody that had some uh, influence on you back then? 
Well, it's interesting. I grew up really between Northern and Southern California. I was born in Los Angeles. I spent the first few years there. Then we moved to Northern California. Then I came back to, we were sort of nomads with my mother, just her lifestyle and relationships. Um, so then I moved back to Southern California as a teenager, stayed 10 years, then moved back to the Bay Area. And now I'm back again. So it's really between those. Um, when I was a teenager, uh, I started going to a church in Southern, a big church in Southern California called Agape. Oh, my God. We've and, had Michael on the show. Oh, yeah. And I, I've like, done a few interviews with Michael Beckwith as well. Isn't he great? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just. And I was a teenager. I started going to his church. You know, now I'm in my, you know, early 40s. But he he was my first really big inspiration and where I first started to understand, oh, yes, my mind. And so I write about him with a lot of affection. And, um, yeah, I feel a lot of gratitude for the work that he's doing. And we should tell listeners that um, going to Michael Beckwith's church is not an ordinary church experience. <laughs> no. And, uh, and nor is it really Christian in, in the usual sense of the word. And so uh, we would encourage people, look for the Michael Beckwith interview in our archive and uh, check him out online. Uh, uh, Spring, this is a very interesting, uh, you talk about being uh, kind of, uh, several times already, you talked about having uh, two sides of things, uh, Northern California, Southern California, going to uh, uh, being drawn to Buddhism, being drawn to the shamanic traditions of South America. You're also, as I understand it, biracial. Mm -hmm. did, did, that, uh, did that configuration in your life, being half uh, having a, a one black parent, one white parent, did that factor in to your searches and your uh, early um, seeking? Well, I think in some ways, you know, biracial people, whenever you're navigating two cultures or two sort of like two identities in some way, I think it added to early confusion in mm. my life just in regards to to my mother and some of the choices that she made. But ultimately, I always felt like it helped me to have this way of bridging things. You know, mm -hmm. there's this way in which I'm very fluid and, and I can adapt to any situation. I could adapt to any community. When I'm going out into the world, I get invited to places that might have a demographic that's all say upper middle class white people. Or and then sometimes I get invited to teach at a school in East Oakland or somewhere where, and I feel comfortable. I was like, okay, here I am in this world. Here I am in this world. Great. <laughs> Dennis, can I follow up on that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You're, you're alluding to something. One of the reasons I asked that question is it, it, it always occurs to me that some aspect of spirituality and seeking is around the, the sort of little subtle thoughts we have of who am I really? And, and a lot of, uh, growth and spirituality has to do with uh, disidentifying with limited aspects of ourselves and identifying with bigger ones. And that's why I asked about these, I, these identities and whether that could be an asset in um, that kind of process. Does that make well, sense? 
Yes, I know exactly what you're saying. And I think, you know, and I write a lot about diversity and I write about my experiences being sort of in these communities when I was very young. And it was actually very painful to be sort of the only African-American person, even biracial, identified with being a person of color. Um, and there's a lot that, you know, I think in our spiritual communities right now, there's a lot coming out around this yeah, race, yeah. class, gender, who's in, who's not. And I think for some way, what you're talking about is like, we honor our identity on the relative level, like, okay, I appear as this. And on the relative level, this conventional level, it's important on the absolute level Yes, I'm made of stars. <laughs> you know, there is no separation. But to ignore the relative level, we get into trouble. Yeah. If I just identify too much with the absolute, I'm not paying attention to the karmic reality, right? I'm just thinking, no, we're all made of stars. I'll just ignore all the racism, the hatred, and bypass it all. But there's something about being in both levels of that that truth at the same time with identity. Uh, yeah, I think very that's good. well put and I think very important. I wanted to ask you, Spring, uh, your book, the title of Fierce Heart, and then the subtitle, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. Uh, if you could elaborate on that subtitle. Yeah, you know, really that came out of, you know, when I was going to Peru and working with trauma and also working in urban communities, um, and meeting people that have overcome myself and others tremendous suffering, like abuse and injustice or abandonment, and using it as an opportunity not to become shut down and bitter, but using it as an actual way to open and to develop more courage. And, you know, I collect biographies from all over the world. I just love personal biographies. And don't we all love the biography of the underdog? The one who had all the difficulties, whether it's Maya Angelou or, or any, you know, Nelson Mandela. Those are bigger figures. But everyday people who overcome a lot. Um, and I started to see that there's a strength and meeting difficulty that there's some there's a power in dealing with suffering there's there's something there about turning toward what is hard and opening to it that we sort of grow in a way that we don't grow when everything is just kind of beautiful and blissful right, right? I, i'm going to follow up on that uh I, I i have a friend who's teaching meditation in uh, uh south chicago and uh, mm -hmm. it's a very high crime area um school you have to go through metal detectors and all and a lot of kids have very uh hard uh, harsh backgrounds and not the best situations outside of school and uh she's originally from libya herself uh, but living in the states many years and when she went in she expected boy it's you know she she had been teaching sort of upper middle class people they really liked meditation but she said these kids from these very uh, uh rough backgrounds uh, had the had a, a a a much deeper appreciation, generally speaking, than the average person living in a, a, a in a more affluent situ world uh, in, a, in, a, in a in in a world that you would think would be more conducive to meditation. And mm -hmm. she's just been blown away by it, and she's totally attached and and uh, uh, to what she's uh, doing in a good way. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I, uh, if you could just speak to that a bit. Yeah, there's a kind of resiliency, 
that you find when people have encountered things and not only just encountering uh, difficult situations, but are working with it skillfully. You know, that's what we love. It's like, wow, there's this kid. And I really understand that. I used to teach in juvenile halls in Oakland and I fell in love with the kids there. I really did. It was like, I write about that around some kids that really just blasted my heart open. But there's a way in which our our negating of what's difficult, our wanting to push away, you know, rather as upper class America trying to push everything away or pretend that things aren't difficult. You know, we're sort of a, we like to present a side of ourselves of perfection. Everything's perfect, especially those who are on the spiritual path. Um, you know, as if there's something shameful about having anger or being depressed or, or feeling terrified. Um, but there is some, there's something very real about those kids in Chicago. They are who they are. They present themselves fully in the present moment. And it's just refreshing. It's like, okay, here we go. There's an honesty to that. That's really um, beautiful. And also, the, you know, the resilient that we are so much stronger than we know. And I teach a lot of that to people. Is that what you mean by a fierce heart? Yes, that the heart is not only about love and beauty and compassion. That's a part of it. Yes. But how do we open to the difficult? I mean, look what's going on in our society. How do we open to that too? You know, that's like, it's like, it's easy to open when things are going well, right? And then what happens when we have an election and everything changes or we have, like, what, what do we do when things are, when the bottom's falling out? What do we do when it's a dark night of the soul, right? How do we meet those moments? And the heart can do that too. You know, the Buddha always said there's 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows and everybody, every human being gets both. And so my book is about finding that, that the heart can actually open to what is even beyond, even like what's happening now with the environment. My mind can't deal with that, but my heart can. My heart can hold it. And so I talk a lot about this, this journey from the head to the heart and how my heart can actually hold tremendous suffering, not only mine, but my community, others, but the, the planet. Um, and that that's a certain fierceness to that. It's like, you know, like the Dalai Lama has a lot of fierceness. He can hold this huge amount of suffering. All great spiritual teachers can hold not only the beauty, but this intense pain that um, they're presented with, often collective. Spring, uh, you studied extensively with Jack Cornfield, you mentioned. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you learned from him and when People come to you to learn meditation or, or to learn whatever uh, you teach along with that. Uh, what, what sorts of instruction do you give them? Yeah, well, my, my connection with Jack goes back a long time. I met him on my first retreat. I just happened upon his retreat in the desert um, when I was very young. And we had a really a heart connection. So I spent a lot of time in years in teacher training and living um, close to him and following him. And one thing about Jack that he's just somebody who has so much compassion, you know, and he's motivated. I think the thing I learned about him was that his motivation every day was for the benefit of others. And that always stood out to me. And also his generosity 
um, you know, he lives so simply, like a, a little monk, you know, I guess it's the years that he was a monk in Asia, it never changed. So I learned a lot about how to live the teachings, you know, in the world from him. So I have so much gratitude and he's been like a father and mentor and he wrote the foreword to the book, of course. Um, and so when people approach me and they're looking for tools or they're looking for practice, the main things that I teach people are present moment awareness. And I try to help people to find time every day to practice being here, being in the present. The thing I like about the Buddhist approach to meditation is it's not about escapism, right? It's not about getting out of the moment. It's not like, let's go to the fifth dimension. Let's get out of here. You know, that kind of meditative practice It's about, no, we're going to open to what's here right now in this moment, in this mind body process. So that is a lot of what I teach. And I, I teach that. And I also teach a lot on the qualities of the heart, compassion, uh, love, equanimity, and joy. So wisdom and compassion, a lot of the core message um, that I like to share with the communities that I um, come in and out of. A uh, spring, one of the uh, biography points uh, in your life was you founded something called the East Bay Meditation Center, and um, which is notable for being uh, very diverse and uh, accessible. It, uh, I'm told. What what was different about it? I know there's in the world of contemporary spirituality uh, a lot of talk about how marginalized communities uh, have not been reached with a lot of contemporary spiritual messages. Uh, did you make an effort to uh, diversify the your constituency and the people who come to you? Yeah, I think that there was, um, with the creation of the East Bay Meditation Center, so we started 14 years ago, and we're located in downtown Oakland. So when we started, when I started to really dream up this vision, it was to have a, a center that was really accessible where the people were, right? A lot of uh, talk nowadays is about um, diversity and inclusivity, inclusivity, and people all want to see their spiritual communities reflect the world in which we live, right? I get a lot of emails about that, a lot mm -hmm. of interest in that. Um, but one of the things that's important to remember is you have to go where the people are. And so we really made an effort to start in downtown Oakland. Um, that was really big. And then we did a lot of outreach specifically to um, different affinity groups, rather it's LGBTQ uh, questioning groups, of, people of color. We did a lot of that. And so we were very strategic in how we presented things. We're really translating the Dharma, who our teachers are, who, who is sharing that evening. All of that has an impact on who attends the group. And so we did. We really, really wanted to be a force to reach out. And so, of course, one of the things that we did was decided that there would be no fees for any of our classes and we would base everything on the gift economy generosity based economics and so that was a huge barrier so for 10 years i pretty much taught non-stop many community classes um and every topic you can imagine more love compassion presence all the buddhist teachings um insight meditation spiritual activism you know 
all on a donation based level. And it's amazing how we've thrived and grown even in such a um, expensive part of the, you know, California being so expensive, you know, right. uh, we've been thriving even till now, you know, we've grown and we relocated to a bigger place. And so we, at this point, we have classes um, every single day, even sometimes twice in one day, a morning class, an evening class, and we see hundreds of people come and go through our center. And do they come from uh, all around the uh, East Bay? And is it as diverse as you hoped it would be? Oh, yeah, it's very diverse. Yeah, it's um, many of our classes, many of our evening, we have affinity groups that sit every week. So we have like a weekly schedule and then we have weekend workshops. It is, it is because the community started that way. It's very hard to build diversity into any community later. When you already have an established community, it's very hard sorry, to add people to that. You have to start with your core team that way. You have to start with that as a, a foundational principle. Uh, you know, it's very hard later because the community's developed, right? It already has a vibe to it. So, so we did, and it's been very successful. And we're always growing. We're always learning. Um, you know, creating a, an inclusive communities where all beings are welcome, you know, it's a practice. Mm. Uh, Spring, I also, I wanted to ask you, uh, you spend a lot of time in Peru. Uh, what brought you there and uh, what, what type of uh, activities or retreats do you run there? So my interest in Peru kind of came out again of one of my own dark nights of the soul. And um, I, I'm working on a new book about that now, actually, about what that means to work with plant-based medicine or plant spirit medicine and and that. But I I was couldn't seem to really heal from a lot of deep trauma. It was still stuck in my body after many years of meditation practice. I'd been all over the world. I'd been blessed. I'd been, you know, swam with dolphins. I, you know, I'd done <laughs> I had it all, right? I had done everything. And yet I still had these big pieces lodged in my energetic body. It was almost on the DNA level. And once I was on a three month intense meditation course in silence and I kind of fell apart near the end of that. And that led me to starting to look for other ways to deal with trauma. And we didn't know that much about trauma like we do now. This was uh, 11 years ago in our in our Buddhist community. We were just starting to understand why can't people just sit for hours? What's going on? Why are they freaking out? You know, and so this became a big topic with many of the teachers, of course. Um, but what happened was I left this retreat very destabilized. I came back to California and I met with a friend of mine who was a clinical psychologist. And she said, you know, I heard about this plant in Peru and I started working with it a couple years ago to heal my own trauma. And this was someone I really highly respected who was also a dear friend. She said, come to this ceremony because I was in a very bad state. She said, come, I want you to drink this plant. And I was like, drink this plant, what? But I was so desperate, right? When you're at the end, when you're at the rock bottom, you'll do, you'll try anything. And so I really thought, okay, come to this ceremony with, and it was a small group of psychologists. And she said, there's, you, you're just gonna drink a little of this plant and there's this beautiful shaman there and he's gonna play music and sing and it's very safe. And so I went and it, it was life changing. Um, and that one night I understood more about myself than I had in years. 
So I got curious about this plant that was growing in the Amazon, and I started going to the jungle kind of as research. I started to fly to Peru and fly to Iquitos, um, a city on the upper Amazon region. And I started um, going deep into the jungle and working with uh, Shipibo, indigenous healers, and, and working with all of their plants that they work with. And it has been life-changing. And that's like a whole story in and of itself. And I ended up living down in the jungle for a year studying. And, um, and then out of that, I started my organization, which is called Lotus Vine Journeys. And what Lotus Vine Journeys does is we blend Buddhist-based philosophy, philosophy with plant-based medicine. So um, we take people on these 14-day journeys where we have yoga and dharma practice and study. And then we also have ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, and so where people can really work on healing themselves. And it's been phenomenal. <laughs> now, can we go into that a little bit more, uh, Spring? Um, it's It would seem on the surface um, a, a, a kind of... Uh, strange bedfellows to talk about, <laughs> yes, um, I you know, traditional Buddhist uh, practices and these shamanic uh, practices with use of um, plant, what you call plant medicine. Um, how do you see them as related and what kind of experiences are people having with ayahuasca and are there uh, cautionary notes? Are there side effects? Are there bad, what we used to call bad trips? Um, <laughs> how do you deal with that? Okay, so I will first say absolutely. This is a very controversial topic. And for many years, I hid all of that that I was doing. I was just not speaking about it, not talking about it. Um, until a few years ago when I actually spent a year in the jungle and I saw so many miracles, healings, people from cancers, the autoimmune disorders, to, to deeply debilitating depression, anxiety. And out of that, I just went back to my community and I'm on the teacher's council at Spirit Rock. And so we've had a lot of dialogues, the elders council and senior teachers that have had concerns. We've sat down and talked about it very openly. Like, yes, in the Buddhist tradition, we take what are called the five precepts and non-harming, which is non-killing, non-stealing, sexual, no sexual harassment or being aware of sexual energy, lying. And then the fifth one is around intoxicants. Right. And this is the rub, right? Is this a drug? Is this a plant that's healing people? And so... I have just honored because I have such a deep love for the Buddhist tradition. And, you know, it's it's one of my heart traditions, as other traditions are, but I really come out of that lineage. And I find that there is so much help for people who are dealing with trauma and also people who are just stuck. I meet people who have been doing Buddhist retreats for 20 years and they say, you know, nothing's going on anymore. I'm not growing same patterns. I'm still stuck. My heart's not open after years of practice. And so um, I find that this approach, working with plants, is a, an accelerator. And we don't have time to wait anymore. We're sort of at this period in our 
cosmos, our history, where we've got to wake up a little bit faster. So working with plants for me has been a huge accelerator of consciousness. Um, can I can I follow up, Dennis? Let me follow up, Phil. Okay. I had a question. Uh, I have um, encountered a number of people that have uh, gone to South America, met with shaman, done ayahuasca or whatever plant-based, and the experience that I've seen has been very mixed. Some people, as you say, have had very good experiences. Other people have had very bad experiences and everything in between. So I think that I would really emphasize the cautionary yes. side of it. Because I, I, I mean, I know some people that have really uh, observed people have really gotten messed up and other people that say it's, it, it was tremendous for them. So <clears throat> uh, I'm just, and, and I, I'm just going by my observation and the feedback I've gotten from folks that have had that, uh, had that experience. So I think that, that it, uh, I, I would uh, uh, give much caution to anybody. Yes. Yes. Well, that, that gets to what I was going to ask spring. Um, I'm, anticipating people will hear this interview and say, hey, yeah, I've been meditating a long time. I feel stuck too. I'm uh, I'm going online and getting a ticket to uh, Lima. Um, what would you advise people? And uh, what about the possibility of people doing something they might regret? Yes. Yeah, so first I want to, I want to emphasize that, um, this is not right for everybody. And I will say that Peru, the sad thing about what's happened down in Peru is that because of the influx of people from all over the world, I mean, the ayahuasca retreat business, I hate to call it that, but for a lot of people, <laughs> it's a business, it's boomed. Yeah. It, it's kind of like, I call it the new India, Peru. Yeah, yeah. It's all these young people, all these people looking for enlightenment, and what you have is all the trappings of a, of a scene like that, right? Yeah. Corrupt gurus, corrupt shamans, and people are jumping into retreat environments where the set and the setting are not ideal. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons that I came online with what I wanted to do was I thought, what would it be like to be in an amazing setting where we're weaving integrity, the dharma, the safety, all of this? I, I wanted to design something that I wanted to go to because I've seen it all. I mean, I'm writing a book about it. I've been with you know, sorcerers and fakes and everything that you could imagine. You know, it's been like Star Wars at times down there. <laughs> um, but that's also part of the journey is learning. And sometimes also with working with the plants, it can bring up trauma. And if you're not in a safe situation where people can help you and are there for that, if you're with people who don't speak English or you're in a setting where they leave you on your own or they don't always understand. So there's been a lot of cross-cultural mistakes too, some very innocently because how the medicine affects uh, indigenous people is very different than someone who comes and has maybe has a psychiatric condition or mm -hmm. something very serious. So it is not right for everybody. For those who have a strong practice, have good physical health, or have a certain calling to go deeper, it's a calling, you know, to go to some other, you know something's wrong and it's at a deeper level. Um, so, but you do have to be very mindful and you do have to be, pay a lot of attention. And sometimes working with the plants, it's not always easy. It's shadow work. Right. And it can bring up 
a lot of pain and suffering. And sometimes that can be what you need. And that's also why I write about a fierce heart. Definitely some of my experiences of my own healing have been really painful. However, for me, the benefit has outweighed that. What I've seen, what I've learned, how we work with the plants, the way we do it. And that's why I'm writing a book about how we are doing things, because I really believe that there's a new voice that needs to emerge on these topics. Um, so I'll, I'm doing much more public speaking. For years, I never spoke about any of this publicly due to my relationship to Spirit Rock and my um, my being a Buddhist-based teacher. But... Um, but I feel now it's time, but I agree. Caution is important. Spring, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on. And again, uh, the book, A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in uh, Any Moment. And your website, uh, springwashem.com. Uh, we'll have this all posted up uh, with the podcast uh, and a lot of information and also your schedule uh of retreats and, and, and speaking engagements are will be posted up, are posted up uh, on the website. So thank you so very much uh, for taking the time to come on. Thank uh, you for having me. Spring, uh, maybe uh, one last uh, brief uh, request. Um, sure. A lot of your uh, book is uh, built around the notion that uh, suffering can be an ally and dark times can be an opportunity to grow. Uh, and um, as you noted, you know, collectively, uh, these are some very challenging times. And of course, everybody has them in their lives in a, in a, this is unfair, but in a minute or two, what would you like to leave our listeners with, with respect to dealing with uh, those uh, periods of, in their lives? Yeah, I think if you're, uh, if any of your listeners, which I'm sure are many, are dealing with sort of the dark night or feeling like they're going through um, a painful time, to just recognize it as a cycle and to have real faith around it, um, that you're going through something very important. It's just not suffering for suffering's sake, but that these, these times actually awaken something in us. They sort of um, purify something. So if you're going through a cycle like that, just hang on and take refuge in your practices, find your spiritual community, um, and you can get through it. It's a, an important time. It's a time to actually honor and pay attention uh, to the deeper voice that's trying to move you in a direction. Something's trying to unravel, let it, right? Just let it, even though that can feel scary, um, but we emerge on the other side of those experiences better and uh, more awake and more fully engaged and more clear on who we are. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll leave it with that. How Very that? good. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Spring. Thank you so much. It's lovely to have had you on and best of luck with all your work. Oh, thank you so much. Many blessings to you both.